before we start our epic drama in our scripture today, it's helpful for us to know a few things about time and John's thought process. It's important for us to know that Revelation 12 is a prequel to the book of Revelation and the events we've recently heard about. A prequel is a story that takes place before to better help describe the origins of the current story we find ourselves in. Many of our favorite movies do this. One that comes to mind for me is Star Wars. The first movie that George Lucas released years ago put the, uh, the storyline smack dab in the middle of the plot with Star Wars 4, right? And it wasn't until after Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 played out that then years later we got to see the prequel of events that led up to 4, 5, and 6 in the movie's one, two, and three. And just like one, two, and three, finally fill in the gaps of four, five, and six and give us a better, a better picture of what is happening, John also saw it fitting to disrupt his letter right here in the middle to provide the narrative rationale for the movement of his visionary plot that we are going to continue seeing unfolding. Chapter 12 tells a story of the past to remind the listeners of the present why this information is important. Just like Revelation 12 stopped, it, stopped the storyline in its tracks and served as a good reminder to its original audience, I think for us too it's important to take a pause and remember what Revelation is all about. At this point in the narrative, it's easy to forget that we are reading a letter. It is a letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor. John is writing to a specific people group at a specific time who are under the rule and oppression of the Roman Empire. And although this part of the letter of Revelation 12 reads more like a movie, it's important for us to understand its level of importance in the narrative of what is to come. Now, there are three primary scenes in our passage today. And just like experiencing a cinematic feature, we are going to follow John's non-sequential plotline today. But first, let's introduce our characters. The verses start out, Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman and a dragon. Immediately, we understand both these characters to be the antagonist and protagonist of our story today. But who do they represent? We know that John is not writing about a literal woman and a literal dragon, although that would be very Game of Thrones-esque of him. If we take a closer look at their descriptions, we get some clues. The, the scripture says, the woman is clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet and she was wearing a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was also pregnant and crying out in labor pains. Imagine the beauty of the sun being clothed around this woman. The sun and the dazzling feature indicates the woman is a representative of God. She's a stunning representation of God, of how God expresses God's self in the life of God's people. What a beautiful image of God's light shining through us. The crown upon her head also possesses another symbolically complete number, 12 a number associated with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 
The 12 stars then represent the completeness of the church that finds its foundation and indeed its genesis in this celestial woman. John is using words from Isaiah 66 to solidify this woman as God's procreative ability to birth a people of faith. Isaiah tells us, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Imagine, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Now, I have four birthing stories that I could sit here and tell you about, but let me tell you something. If I had the option, I would have called the doctor and said, I want the Isaiah 66 special, please. No pain and no labor before giving birth. How awesome would that be, other mothers out there? But we know that this woman is not an actual person, but she's a representative of both the Israelite and apostolic people of faith who groan before their persecutors as they await the birth of the Messiah who will shepherd them toward a place in God's victorious reign. Now, what about that dragon? In Isaiah and Ezekiel, we find descriptions of a dragon to be a metaphor for historical powers like Egypt and Babylon that assailed God's people. In mythical folklore, we are, uh, we are drawn into the character of a dragon at their great majesty about them, right? John tells us that it's hostile in nature and red in color, which is a color for destruction and slaughter. The dragon is best understood as the satanic forces behind the imperial power that, that we see in the empire of Rome. And as the story unfolds, John will specifically name the dragon as Satan. Now John associates Rome with the attributes of the evil dragon. And just like God saved the Israelites from the Egyptians in the Exodus, John believes God will defeat the evil empowering Roman rule as well. To John, the new Exodus for God's people will be out from under Rome. John goes on to write and describe that the dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. This image is meant to convey a powerful adversary, one that looks like it would have certain victory over the lamb. It is clear that only through eyes of faith could we see how a lamb could possibly defeat a dragon. And now the stage is set and the drama starts to unfold. We see that the dragon's ultimate aim is to terminate the woman's son, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Fulfilling the vision from Isaiah, the celestial woman births a son who will shepherd all the nations. The son Jesus will shepherd not just believers, but all nations, turning all people in the proper direction, orienting them toward repentance. The son, in an amazing a quick scene is snatched away to God in God's throne. This is the depiction of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension all in the same moment. Out of Israel, who is representative of the woman, Jesus is born. 
And from Jesus, the church is born. Jesus lives, ministers, and is ultimately crucified by Rome, but brought to life through the resurrection three days later. Three days later. He is now seated on God's throne, which we can see in Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So we see in this birth and snatching up the life and ministry of Jesus. It's amazing how in this narrative it happens all in a moment. But this is the depiction of Jesus' life. And even throughout Jesus' ministry, evil is constantly trying to oppress him. Jesus is oppressed through the, the people. Jesus is oppressed through temptation. Jesus is oppressed through the ultimate crucifixion that the Roman Empire did during his death on the cross. It's easy to see that the dragon probably thought that he had won. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus is constantly being pursued by the dragon, even ultimately to the death on the cross. But that story didn't end there, did it? The resurrection and the ascension happened three days later, and Jesus ascended to God's throne, ultimately defeating the dragon and now we know that the dragon did not win. But what happens to the woman? Uh, the, the verses go on to tell us that the woman fled into the desert where God has prepared a place for her. There she will be taken care of for 1,260 days or three and a half years, which is symbolic of a limited amount of time. Isn't it strange that the woman would be taken to a place as described as the wilderness? I think of the wilderness as isolation and desolation. No doubt John is recounting the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt into the wilderness where the people were nurtured and provided for by God. We know the stories of the manna raining down from heaven to nourish God's people and the guidance that they received through the pillar of fire in the cloud. We don't often think of the wilderness as a place to go for nourishment, but we see this recount of protection and provision time and time again in the Bible. Moses flees to the wilderness to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. Elijah is nurtured and protected by God in what clearly appears to be a wilderness setting. And let's not forget the temptations of Jesus for 40 days by the devil, which led him into the wilderness. And afterward, after, his, after Jesus' successful resistance against the devil, Jesus is taken care of and provided for at the end. God here has once again prepared a place of refuge and nurture for the people who are symbolized here by the woman through whom they are given existence. Now, we all go through times that can feel like a wilderness, can't we? I think of a wilderness as a time of upheaval where life has been flipped upside down on its head a time of grief and loss, a time of uncertainty and trying to navigate unchartered territory while trying not to get lost along the way. Anyone feel like you are in a wilderness now? Certainly some of the events that we've experienced lately have felt wilderness-like. But what does God promise? What do we see God do time and time again? God provides for God's people in our wilderness. 
God strengthens us and equips us with wisdom and guidance. God provides for us both tangibly and intangibly. God comforts us and walks in our grief with us and accompanies us in our loneliness. As odd of a place as it is to be nurtured in the wilderness, there is no place of isolation or desolation far enough where God cannot meet God's people and provide us with the same nourishment and sustenance that God provides the Israelites. Now, simultaneously, as we end scene one with the snatching up of Christ to heaven in the ascension, we have an abrupt change in characters and location. The next scene sends us straight into a heavenly war between the dragon and the archangel Michael. It is important to note that John purposefully does not put the dragon in opposition with God. God far surpasses the dragon and thereby, thereby need not engage him directly. God's subordinates can do the job. And so, in this case, God delegates the task of battling the dragon to the archangel, Michael. The heavenly war scene that we are seeing now runs parallel to the first scene that we just came from. It runs parallel to Jesus' death and resurrection. Just as in the entire book of Revelation, John is playing with time and space. Revelation 12 is not written chronologically, but simultaneously as parallel events that are happening in the past, present, and future. But which future is John talking about? It's important to remember that since Revelation 12 is a prequel of the events of the entire book of Revelation, that the future John is referring to is his present. We will see this play out as we continue the narrative. Not only does John move through time, but he also is continuously moving between scenes in heaven and on earth as it is in heaven. As heaven is impacting earth, so earth is impacting heaven. We see this uh, drama of time and space play out in maybe some of our favorite movies. It reminds me of The Matrix and Back to the Future, where the characters can play with time and space and realms, but yet it has a direct impact on what is happening in the current events. Now, this past week, my oldest daughter, Victoria, turned 11, and we uh, hosted for her at home a Harry Potter-themed birthday, because in the Harry Potter book series, on the 11th birthday is when the characters get their admission and acceptance into Hogwarts, which in this case is a school where wizards and magic folk go. Now, constantly throughout the series in Harry Potter, we see the magical world and the human world, which they call the muggle world. So that was what, that's what you and I are. We're not magic folk, we're muggles. And we constantly see the magical world and the muggle world impacting one another. And as Harry and his friends journey throughout this epic drama, Harry is constantly going back and forth through the worlds, into the magical realm and into the human muggle world. In one of these scenes that I was watching as we were uh, watching one of the Harry Potter movies this week uh, with my daughter, is there is a pursuit going on. Voldemort is the antagonist in the Harry Potter trilogy, and as he pursues Harry in a particular scene, they are going in and out of the magical world and the human world, the muggle world, and as, as they are in a chase, 
buildings in the human world are being destroyed, bridges collapse, cars just start flipping. It's utter chaos, but no one in the muggle world or the human world can see what's happening or why these events are taking place. It really reminded me that how John is playing with these scenes in the same way. John, John writes about depicting the dragon's defeat and expulsion from heaven by Michael and his angels, and he uses that scene to illustrate the actual defeat of the dragon through Jesus' resurrection. On earth, Jesus is being crucified and then raised to life three days later in the resurrection. Simultaneously in heaven, Jesus' victory over death means the victory over the dragon, which is being played out in heaven. The dragon, who John now explicitly names as Satan, is cast out of heaven down to earth along with his angels because of the victory Christ had over sin, death, and the grave in the resurrection. Since there is no place left in heaven for Satan, he is now cast down to earth through the power of the resurrection. As Jesus is raised up in the ascension, Satan is cast down at the same time. Jesus spoke about this during his ministry. We see in Luke 10:18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Let's talk about the devil for a few minutes. Known as Lucifer, evil, deceiver, serpent, adversary, opponent of God, slanderer, the enemy. And as John is about to tell us in verse 10, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. To help us understand John's depiction of Satan as accuser, we need to look back at Job, where Satan sits on the council and acts as Job's accuser, impressing upon God that if all good things are taken from Job, that Job will turn against God. And in Zechariah 3, at Satan's role as accuser of the high priest Joshua, where he presses God's case or does God's work of probing the integrity of human beings. In this scene, we see the high priest Joshua standing before God in filthy clothes and Satan accusing him of wrongdoing. God then rebukes Satan's accusation and says to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. That John has these characteristics in mind as he shares his vision of Revelation 12 is without question. John describes Satan as being in a heavenly court, one whose specialized function was to seek out and accuse persons disloyal to God. I like to personally imagine this as a courtroom scene. Imagine with me for a few moments as we, as we uh, open up our imaginations. Imagine God as judge, as the just and merciful judge in the courtroom. And Michael, the archangel, as the public defender of all of God's faithful people. Now imagine Satan as the prosecutor, the accuser that keeps himself in business since he is the one doing the tempting and deceiving to people towards wrongdoing. 
We can imagine this courtroom playing out like a bad reel. The accused stands before God as judge and Satan is constantly pointing the finger and throwing out accusations over and over. As John says, day and night without ceasing, Satan hurls the accusations at the accused. And God says, as the just and merciful judge, how am I going to stop this? God decides, I'm going to send myself in the form of my son, Jesus Christ, to come down to earth to die on the cross for the world and to be raised back to life. It's amazing now that as Jesus enters the courtroom scene, as the mediator, how the scene changes. Now God is still judge, but Satan as the prosecutor is hurling the accusations at the accused and Jesus steps in the middle and says to God, they are covered by my blood. Through their repentance and the free gift of the salvation that I have offered them, clothe them in the white clothes. They are no longer filthy for they are covered in the blood that I shed for them. Satan no longer has a role in heaven. There is no reason to be accused anymore because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This facet of the great dragon as Satan, the one who deceives those who dwell on the earth, is made clear in his capacity in Revelation as the one who accuses our brothers and sisters day and night. In other words, Satan's deceptive powers are put in service of his prosecutor role. By deceptively persuading wrongdoing in people, Satan successfully builds an indefensible case against every defendant. John's use of the verb accuses is very intentional here as he is writing to churches in Asia Minor who are currently being accused by the evil empire of Rome for not conforming to the Roman way. Because Satan defies God's love, grace, and mercy, and due to the salvific work Christ did on the cross, God delivers us from the oppression of the accuser. Simultaneously, as Satan is thrown down to earth out of that proverbial courtroom, there is a victory hymn of praise as Jesus is raised up to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. The reason for the praise is twofold. One, Satan has been conquered, and the reign of God has come. John, again, is addressing the hearers and readers in each of the seven churches to testify to the lordship of Christ and thereby conquer the satanic delusion that Rome and evil is lord of human history. Through this praise and victory hymn, John is reminding his readers and reminds us today that we can conquer the evil dragon with two primary weapons, the blood of the lamb and the word of our witness to the lordship of Christ the lamb. God uses the dragon's ultimate weapon against it. God used death and turned it into eschatological life with God through salvation. Death leads not to separation from God, but to eternal relationship with God. God defeats the dragon by using death to bring life. Now the dragon is defeated in heaven, but our story is not over yet. So where does our story take us now?
We change scenes yet again as we follow the dragon's fall to earth. It is at this point in the story that the woman's identity morphs into the church that gives birth to the people of God. In the opening scene, the woman is depicted as a celestial being, one who represents the procreative ability of God to birth a community of believers through God's son, Jesus. In that regard, she's untouchable by the dragon. I like to think of her as God's ultimate redemptive plan. A plan is not something that is tangible, like before a writer puts pen to paper, as George Lucas developed the thoughts and storyline of Star Wars, or J.K. Rowling developed the characters and world of Harry Potter. There is nothing tangible yet. But once the world is created, once the characters take on bodily form and actors and actresses, now there are things that are vulnerable. In the celestial, the woman is not tangible and therefore not vulnerable to the attack of the dragon, or else the dragon would have just tried to devour the woman instead of waiting to devour her son. But now God's plan has taken on bodily form. The woman is now us, the church, the community of believers as a whole. We are God's family that has been birthed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which means we are now vulnerable to the enemy's attacks on earth. We are told then that the woman is carried by God as if on the wings of an eagle and brought to the place in the wilderness that God has prepared for her. In the Old Testament, flights on eagles' wings is well, a well-regarded image for the secreting away of the faithful under God's protective care. And just as the primary weapon of Christ is the sword of his mouth, that is the word of his testimony to his own lordship, the dragon uses deception out of his mouth to deceive people into believing in his own lordship and the lordship of its minions like Rome and Asia Minor. In an attempt to finally overcome the woman, the serpent spewed deception like a river from its mouth so that he might sweep her away with a flood of lies. But we see that even in the midst of apocalyptic war, God uses the earth like so many times before to save God's people. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river of lies, refusing to believe in the dragon's lordship over creation. The dragon is angry over this defeat and goes off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, the brothers and sisters of the faith, you and me. John and the believers in his time. The message of the dragon is clear. He wants us to believe that we have to accommodate to him, that we have to worship him, that resistance is futile. But we all know that resistance is not futile. And although the story is not over, we will see evil reinvigorate itself in the next chapter because the pursuit of the devil is not complete. But we have to remember what Jesus has told us. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven as it is in heaven. Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever is loose on earth will be loose in heaven. 
as it is in heaven. So why did John write this passage and place it in the middle of the book of Revelation? I think it was to remind his readers that the victory has already been won. As the victory was won in heaven, so it has been won on earth. I think it was to empower the readers to live into that victory by proclaiming Jesus' lordship even in the face of danger and oppression. Like when a general gives an empowering and motivational speech to encourage his fellow soldiers that what they're fighting for is worth it, that their cause is just, and that something bigger than themselves is happening. So John is empowering the people of the faith, encouraging them, motivating them, reminding them that the fight is bigger than themselves because the battle has already been won by a victorious slain lamb. Even though there is still a devilish pursuit on our churches, even today, this same message holds true for us. These same words that empowered the early believers apply to us here today. Evil is always on the prowl, ready to devour God's offspring, brothers and sisters of the faith. But I want to remind us here today that the victory is won. And since that victory is won in heaven, it is won here on earth as well. Now, that doesn't mean things will be perfect. But what it means is that we have the ability to overcome the devilish pursuit. We have the ability to take the blood of the lamb and the witness we have to Jesus Christ's lordship and throw it back in evil's face. Now, we cannot deny the banality of evil. It is in our church. It's constantly pursuing our churches. It takes the shape of different forms like gossip, malice, hate, self-service, judgment, and idolatry. The evil that John was inspired to write about is as much about the empire of Rome as it is about the self-destructive forces of evil that John knew were creeping into the church. What John knows is that Rome, as terrible as they are, isn't the ultimate enemy of the church. The ultimate enemy that the church has to worry about is that evil is pursuing it. Revelation 12, 12 tells us, but oh, the horror for the earth and sea. The devil has only come down to you with great rage for he knows that he only has a short time. John himself was living in that short time, and we are still living in that short time today. The devilish pursuit on God's people and God's church. The temptation to succumb to the evil is great, but the tension and irony is that evil is self-destructive. There is no better example of this than what we saw in the dragon today. As the dragon is personified as both Satan and the evil empire like of Rome, we know that both come to its own demise. Satan's demise in the resurrection of Jesus and Rome's demise in its eventual fall from power. Remember towards the beginning of our journey through Revelation, we talked about the scroll the letter written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We were encouraged to think about our scroll and what a letter to FFMC would look like. What words would be penned by God to us? Do you ever wonder why John was pointing out the wrongdoings and shortcomings of those churches? 
It was to get them to see the evil that was lurking within their own walls. Now, if, John, if all John wanted to do was make them feel bad by pointing out their shameful acts, he would have stopped writing at Revelation 3, and that would have been the end of the letter. But God had a bigger purpose in mind. Yes, John wrote to get them to see that evil was lurking, but he also wrote to empower them to get rid of it before it festered and grew so big and cancerous that they self-destructed. No matter what our letter says, FFMC, no matter what evil is lurking about in our own church, we have two clear weapons to eradicate it. Remember the weapons that John reminded us of. As a church and individuals, our two greatest weapons against sin and evil are the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of Jesus Christ's lordship over our lives and over our church. We need to remember our identity in Christ and remind ourselves here today of our purpose just as John was reminding the readers of his day of their purpose. We need to remember that the triumph and victory that has taken place serves as our reminder that all that remains to be, it, it, all that remains is to be faithful witnesses of what we know to be true. As John is constantly doing throughout Revelation, pleading with the churches to remember their first love, to not succumb to the evil parts of the culture around them, to not accommodate culture at the detriment of their faith, to stand against the powers of oppression and remain victorious through the blood of the Lamb and the words of our testimony of Jesus Christ, so too is the Holy Spirit pleading with us through these words to do the same today. Please pray with me.